Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Brian Bella. And I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, along with our colleague Joanne Freeman, we're all historians. And each week, we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. We're going to start today's show in Philadelphia, where huge crowds gather on Broad Street to celebrate New Year's Day. Amid the excitement, onlookers strain to catch a glimpse of the extravagant costumes, lively performances, and elaborate floats of one of the city's most unique traditions, the Mummer's Parade. New Year's Day marks a very special event in Philadelphia, an event that transforms a lot of ordinary people into a famous tradition. On that day, they become mummers, climaxing months of top-secret planning, practicing, and drilling. On New Year's Day, some 15,000 Philadelphia mummers will strut their stuff on the streets of the city. Visitors come from far and wide to see this unique spectacle. Founded in 1901, the Mummers Parade has been a beloved Philadelphia tradition for over a century. Participants are organized into clubs that compete in four distinct categories. String bands, fancies, comics, and wench brigades. But according to scholar Ray Lynn Barnes, the history of the Mummers Parade isn't all fun and games. She says these categories have roots that can be traced back to slavery and blackface minstrelsy. So the first are the string bands, and they basically practice banjo classics, which are the minstrel standards, year-round. And the banjo, of course, is the iconic instrument in pretty much all minstrel shows. Right. So they not only have to collectively play the banjo, but also do pretty elaborate choreography while marching. The second division is called the Fancies or the Fancy Brigade Divisions. These were added a little bit more recently. And once again, it's pretty steeped in American slavery and blackface. So the term now is sort of casually used to suggest that the props, that the costumes are very elaborate and fancy. So I, I would encourage you to sort of imagine very bright colors, highly structured outfits, but also a lot of headdresses, so, so things that you would see in Mardi Gras. And they perform in these four-and-a-half-minute productions, and they're evaluated on their showmanship. But what I mean in terms of it has sort of a complex history is in antebellum America, in the interstate and the domestic slave trade, the term fancy was used to designate light-skinned young black girls who were traded and sold in the slave trade as, I'm hesitant to use the word enslaved prostitutes because they obviously didn't get the profits from their, you know, sex acts, but they were essentially seen as light-skinned sexual prizes. The third is the comic division, and this is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's blackface comedy routines, or at least for most of the century that meant blackface comedy routines. And there's sort of an amazing photograph in the Temple University archives of members of the Jack Hine Old Timers Mummers Club in 1929 in the Mummers Parade. City Hall is sort of receding in the background, and there are 11 blackface minstrels performing in the street for thousands of cheering onlookers, and they're all wearing impeccable tuxedos. Um, it's hard to tell in the black and white photograph that the tuxedos appear to be golden 
complete with a top hat, the oversized bow. These are sort of, once again, the iconic house slave uniforms that are typical of Enmen in minstrel shows. Um, and they're wearing golden tap shoes or slippers. Mm-hmm. And the photograph is taken by someone who's clearly run into the street in front of them on the parade route. And they're holding their canes horizontally in front of them, sort of mid-torso. And you can tell that they're about to shift their weight and launch into this choreographed step or strut for the cakewalk. Finally, the last group are the wench brigades. Um, The mulatto wench is an iconic character in minstrel shows that's once again always performed in blackface and drag. And also there's a lot of fire brigades in a lot of amateur blackface shows. And so it's sort of playing on that. From its very inception, the Mummers Parade was intertwined with depictions of blackface. But in 1963, city officials finally took measures to stamp it out. That's when parade director Elias Myers issued a statement banning blackface and teamed up with the recreational commissioner to broadcast an announcement on television. This, suffice it to say, did not go over well with many of the mummers faithful. These two men immediately become targets of vigilante violence and picketing. So this usually means that hundreds of people who are pro-blackface surround their homes, in this case, the Myers family home, and they taunt and cheer and they throw bottles. Um, And they're very vocal that essentially this would be the first time in its 64-year history that the parade would ban blackface. And they personally interpreted that as encroaching on a family tradition, on ethnic cultural expression, and ultimately harming what they saw as Philadelphia's most unique party and artistic celebration. Heritage. Yeah, exactly. You know, just as with normal blackface, that it's that it's seen as a true American contribution, something that's something that's uniquely ours. And so Myers tries to immediately alleviate some of this tension and he basically points out, okay, well, you know, there actually isn't an anti-blackface city ordinance. There's not a state law. You can wear whatever makeup you want in America. Um But if anyone gets out of line, I'll act. But as the sort of vigilante violence increases, he basically says, like, listen, I don't have the power. The city has no law against minstrels. I can't have you arrested. In response to Meyer's capitulation, the NAACP and the Congress of Racial Equality worked together to undermine the upcoming 1964 Mummers Parade. Adopting a strategy of nonviolent protest, Both organizations threatened to form a human chain on the parade route and staged a sit-in at the local television station. But while this is happening, uh, Charles W. Bowser, who's the attorney for the local NAACP, quietly goes to court where while both of this, the core human chain threat is happening and also this actual television sit-in, goes to court and tries to get this injunction against blackface. Um, And he basically argues, like, listen, we're taxpayers, too, and we don't believe in our money going to depict African-Americans in sort of an unfavorable light, um, a way that's taunting and humiliating. This basically sets off a 72-hour delay of the parade, so it's pushed back until Saturday, um, and the court basically asks for the mummers and the civil rights workers to come together and sort of do the difficult work of trying to find a resolution here. Ultimately, in the end, two judges decide in 1964 that they will not ban the blackface, um, basically saying that there is no legal cause, there's no law on the book, despite the fact that the NAACP is pretty successful in showing how this violates city equality laws, especially um, issues with the tax prizes. The judge rules that the mummers are, quote, a fine tradition in Philadelphia, unquote. 
immediately over 800,000 nationwide NAACP members pledged that they will not watch the parade. They will not buy any products from anyone who's sponsoring the parade. But 1965 is really the year that we have a resolution. As Philadelphia grappled with blackface, the U.S. was reeling from widespread racial turmoil. Police brutality escalated hostilities as incidents like the Watts riot and the New York race riot sent shockwaves throughout the country. Philadelphia was a time bomb of racial tension, and the 1965 Mummers Parade was poised to set it off. So in this incredible moment of racial unrest, in 1965, the NAACP, CORE, and the Mummers are all brought to court by what was known as the Pennsylvania Council of Churches. And they file an injunction against both the parade and the civil rights demonstrators. And they basically say, this has now reached a point where Philadelphia is so unsafe and that there's going to be a race riot that they need a court-granted injunction to prevent this, this sort of impending riot. And so as of 1965, the Mummers officially announced that they will discontinue the use of blackface. And the NAACP and CORE really interpret this as a victory against blackface for civil rights because it is no longer officially sanctioned. As you can guess, doesn't actually officially kill it. There's examples in the 1980s and the 1990s where it continues, but in terms of being sanctioned by the city, it officially ends in 1965. What do you say to those who would argue, well, this is done in fun, or this is kind of a a timeless folk tradition. What is your answer to that? So I think the most complicated thing to separate out is, yes, of course, this is an American tradition. These songs are, you know, um, handed down intergenerationally, and that makes people have an intense emotional attachment to it. And I do think the other complicated thing is the fact that the Mummers performers are incredible performers. These costumes are astounding. The choreography is is incredibly complex. But I do think that we can completely enjoy parades and New Year's celebrations and also uh, artistry, both in the forms of costumes and musical entertainment, without evoking these sort of negative caricatures and also this really dark and complex history that, quite honestly, hurts a lot of people. 